So Matthew chapter 5 follows a, a very characteristic pattern of God's dealings with his creation. Only after leading Israel out of slavery did Yahweh give commandments. Only after assuring them at Sinai, I am yours, did he command them, you shall not. And here in Matthew 5, we see the same pattern. Jesus begins by offering us the blessings, the gifts, the beatitudes. Blessings on the poor, blessings on the meek, blessings on the mourning. And then he empowers us with the you are statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not, not you will be, but you are. It's an empowering statement. And now after the gifts and the empowerment, we turn finally to the call. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. You can read along. It's listed there in your bulletin. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. So Jesus with this paragraph is preparing us to hear his commands, which immediately follow, these six commands which immediately follow, which we'll be hearing more about in the coming weeks. He has not given them yet, but he is preparing us to receive them with this very sobering introduction. We have received already the gifts, the blessings, we've been empowered, and now Jesus wants us to hear his commands, but first he wants us to understand the significance of these six commands that follow. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now Jesus, as a person, Jesus did some, some really unexpected things in his earthly ministry. He dined with sinners, he defended prostitutes, he brought wine to the party, he worked on the Sabbath, he flipped over tables at church, so much so that, that someone who, who, who loves God's law and holds tightly to it might reasonably ask, is, is this guy even a Christian? That Jesus guy, he's not a very good Christian, you know, and, and, and it's understandable that they would ask that question because by some standards, it is questionable. There was always some controversy around whether or not Jesus was strictly orthodox, given his personal freedoms with some of the, the traditional disciplines. But he, he answers us here in verse 17. He says, no, as we make this transition from blessings into commands, he says, no, I, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. In fact, I hold the law in incredibly high esteem. And these four verses, um, these are an introduction to the six commands that follow, but they are also a command in and of themselves. They're a command to take scripture seriously. This is Jesus telling us how he feels about the law of God. And this was necessary because he's about to make these six statements that all begin with some version of, you've heard it was said, but now I say to you. You've heard it was said, do not murder, but now I say, don't even be angry. 
first time that Rob, my husband, and I did Whole30, um, he did it with me just for moral support, like he didn't have to. Um, and and it's, a one, it's so kind that he does that for me. He does it all the time. It's a wonderful characteristic to have in a spouse because it would be a lot harder for me to do it if he was like eating pizza while I'm eating my spinach stuffed lettuce at night. And so when we first did it, the first time we did it, I started out really like overly ambitious. You know, I, I started out this first week and I had all of these recipes that called for things like bok choy and saffron and endive or ondive if you're very posh. And, and, and I even found a coffee alternative called instant chicory, which if you blend it with just a little bit of cocoa powder and a little bit of like coconut milk, tastes absolutely nothing like coffee. It tastes... <laughs> It tastes like maybe like an Almond Joy that's been dropped in the mud, like a muddy Almond Joy, <laughs> minus the joy, like an Almond Heartbreak. But, but, I really, but I wanted to do it right. I really wanted to do it right. I was determined, so I didn't step one toe out of bounds. I read the whole book, which you know harped on the idea that you cannot have pancakes, even if the pancakes are made of nothing but eggs and bananas. And, and, and I, I did batch cooking on Sundays, so I would, I would cook all these meals and I would prepackage them and label them. I planned out all the meals for the week, particularly because I was working late every night that week trying to get a sermon done. So I prepackaged these meals to make sure that Rob had something to eat, to make sure Ember had something to eat. But towards the end of the week, I opened the refrigerator and, and I noticed that there's still a lot of food in the fridge, like more food than there should be in the fridge. And so I start to look and I see that all of Rob's dinners are just there untouched. And so I ask him, hey, hey what, have, what have you been eating this week? And he like looks up kind of busted and he's like, uh, Adele's chicken apple sausage. And I'm like, great, but there was only one package. What else have you been eating? And he goes, uh, bacon. <laughs> and, and, and now technically he wasn't breaking the rules. He was following the letter of the Whole30 law, but the fact remains that, that no matter what your health goals are, like bacon and sausage aren't gonna get you there. And, and he's right, we, we were allowed to have those things. Like we were allowed to have those things, but the point of the diet was not simply to abstain from certain foods, it, it was to eat healthfully. Which, which meant, you know, we were supposed to be eating vegetables and we were supposed to be eating uh, salad and, and, and lean meats and proteins, but with, the, you know, with the occasional smattering of sausage and bacon, sure, but, but, but it felt like I just ruined him. I ruined him with this news. He was so deflated. He, it was like a rule had just been added that he didn't know was in there before he signed up for the gig. Like, you've heard it said, do not eat carbs, but now I say to you, don't even go to the fridge when you're feeling sad. I mean, it was like, it's really... <laughs> Like it, it, but it, but it wasn't. It wasn't a new rule. Like it, it was. It was a, a deeper understanding of the rules that already existed. You've heard it said, "Do not murder," but now I say to you, don't even be angry with someone, because then you'll be subject to judgment. Jesus isn't. He's not adding new laws here. He's not changing the number. He's changing the debt. You understand? He, in this verse, he's saying, I'm not adding new arbitrary laws. I'm, I'm helping you to understand the purpose of the laws that already exist. He's not disregarding the law and just making his own. He's changing not the quantity, but the depth. Because Jesus is, is never, ever careless with the gift of Torah from God. In fact, he lives by it. Just one chapter before when he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert and the devil comes to him and he says, if, if you're really the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answers, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 8. Jesus isn't careless with the Torah. He, he lives by it. All of his responses to the temptations are direct quotes from the Torah. He lives by scripture. 
for Jesus, the, 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 the Torah and the Nevi'im, the, the law and the prophets, these are the written word of God. This was Jesus's Bible. And Jesus, as the son of God, of course, has the authority to interpret that word. Jesus is the Messiah. He's over the Old Testament, but, but being over it does not mean he is against it. Jesus' way of being over the Old Testament is first to be under it and first to be for it. Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law. And the Hebrew word for fill, kum, it, it means literally to, to raise up, to set up, to, to put in its place. It's the same verb used for resurrection. Jesus hasn't come to, to, to abolish the law. He's come to breathe life into it. And Jesus breathes new life into the law, not by adding more and harder laws, but by showing us the purpose of the law itself, what we might call the spirit of the law. Because it's not just that God doesn't want us to kill each other, that's you know obedience to, to the letter of the law, it's that he wants us to actively love one another, because that's obedience to the spirit of the law of God. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In the King James, this reads, not a jot or a tittle will disappear from the law until all is, uh, all is accomplished. Jot probably meaning the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, yod, and, and a tittle being just a part of a letter like the cross on a T. So he's saying not the dots on the I's nor the crosses on the T's, none of that will disappear from the law. Jesus is saying, I have a, a very high view of scripture. Jesus has an incredible reverence for scripture. So my question is, why don't we? Why don't we? Bruner writes, if you believe only what you like in the Bible, you don't really believe the Bible. You believe yourself. Jesus's exaltation of the Old Testament in this first command will keep us rummaging in what is often strange country in the confidence that since Jesus liked it and even highly recommended it, there must be gold in these hills. Do we believe that there's gold in these hills? Do we accept the authority of scripture? Do we revere it and respect it as Jesus did? I was reading a study by the Pew Research Foundation about a year ago, and, and, and it talked about how it found that among self-described Christians, so people who on, on the survey said, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, among self-described Christians, only about 75% of them believed in the Bible. And that was probably inflated because belief in the Bible wasn't something that they clarified the meaning of. And, and I do, to some, under, to some degree, understand this discrepancy. In fact, when I meet someone who is not a Christian, I don't start with the Bible, I start with Jesus. And if I meet someone who they're not sure about Jesus because you know, they disagree with or they don't understand something in the Bible, my, my advice is always the same. Start with Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Because why would you, why would you adhere to Christian laws if you don't, recognize the Christ that gave them. It's just, it's kind of like adherence to a, to a faith that you don't yet profess and it's not particularly helpful. But, but that said, for those of us who have come to know and have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, regardless, regardless of our own opinion on the scriptures, we cannot deny that Jesus is very clear about his opinion on the scriptures. And we may not understand it, we may not agree with it, but we must, we must at the very least move toward it as he's called us to. We shouldn't content ourselves to accept Jesus but not the word that he gave us because here's the reality. In the beginning was the word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. If Jesus Christ is God incarnate, then we can, in a manner of speaking, say that the Bible is God inscribed. And the Bible is also the primary way that we get to know Jesus personally. So, so why do we fight that? Why, 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 why are we so afraid of the Bible? Why are we embarrassed of it? As though it's just this archaic record of laws and violence and ritual that just makes people think our faith is so old-fashioned. Listen, to understand what it means, we first have to understand what it meant. Take all those laws, for example. God didn't need us to follow them. God didn't need his people to follow laws. He didn't need them to abstain from eating certain foods. He didn't need them to not murder or commit adultery. He would still just be, he would, he would still be God. He would still be just as almighty, even without our compliance. He's not God because we follow his laws. He's God because he's God. And he didn't need our, our participation. But the mission of Israel was to be set apart. It was to be so different in the way that they lived, that, that other nations took notice of the God they served. The purpose of all those laws was to be set apart. Now, of course, the how has changed. How we are set apart will look different today because people notice us not so much for what we abstain from, like, like nobody cares that you're a vegan. They, they don't notice us for that. They notice us for what we engage in. Loving your enemies, for example, is, is rare in our politically charged climate, and it certainly will turn some heads. So again, the, the, the how has changed, but the why is the same. Be set apart. Be different. Be so different that the world looks at your kindness and your love, and they want to know the God that you live that way for. To understand what it means, we have to understand what it meant. Take, take the violence, the violence of the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices. What's that all about? These were God's path to mercy. Because sinful man, and that's all of us, Sinful man could not stand in the presence of a holy God without being completely destroyed by being burned up in his holiness. But God loved us so much that he didn't want to, be, he didn't want to spend eternity apart from us. And so he, he made the opportunity for us to reconnect. He allowed there to be a substitution, an animal sacrifice. A debt of blood had to be paid, but it could be paid by an animal sacrifice instead of, of our very selves. Now, of course, of course, the how has changed. How we are reconciled to God looks different today because, because Jesus Christ came and he died. And he died once and for all for our sins. Nothing else has to die again for us to live. The how has changed, but the why remains the same. The wages of sin is death. And a debt of blood must be paid, and it was paid once and for all by him. To understand what it means, we have to understand what it meant. Take all of those rituals, for example. Why was there ceremonial washing? Why did I have to show my skin boils to the priest? Why did I have to stop working on the Sabbath? Because, because human beings need boundaries or will die. These were God's boundaries for keeping his people safe. When I, was, uh, when I graduated from college, I went to Guatemala um, shortly thereafter to study Spanish for a few weeks. And, and my mom, who was graciously funding this trip for me, uh, began to research what the dangers were um, that I might run into while traveling there. And the school I was headed for was in the city of Shela or Quetzaltenango, and it was a four-hour bus trip from Guatemala City where I was flying into. And one of the dangers that she had read about was that the tourist buses would often get robbed because, uh, because robbers thought, oh, if you're a tourist, then surely you have loads and loads of money. So uh, as, as a response to this danger, she booked me passage uh, on a chicken bus from 
Guatemala City to Sheila. And when I say chicken bus, I mean there were literally more chickens on the bus than people. They covered everything. They, they, they were all over the seats, or they would have been had there been seats, but there weren't. There were just these bare metal frames where seats once were, um, and all the upholstery had been torn off so that they could make more space for the chicken cages. And so Sheila is also at a high altitude, so once you leave Guatemala City, it's basically straight up this mountain on this, like, phone cord spiral of a road that you just take all the way to the top. And the road that we're on isn't what you might call modern uh, or, or paved. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're going up this mountain, and there was no guardrail, no, no, no prevention from us, uh, between us and the alarmingly steep cliff at the other end of the road. And, and our bus driver, I don't know if, like, he, like, had to go to the bathroom or what, but he's just, like... Tokyo drifting it up this mountain like 50, 60,000 miles per hour and I'm just, I'm terrified and I'm clinging to one of these bare metal frames and just thinking, oh my gosh, please take me back to where the tourists get robbed. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I didn't get robbed. I didn't get robbed on the chicken bus, but I would have traded every last dime of my tourist money for one guardrail on that trip up the mountain. Why does God give us boundaries? Be because they save our lives. He gives us boundaries because without them, we hurt ourselves. And of course, of course, some of the boundaries are going to look different than they did in first century Judea because, because today, you know, we have primary care physicians and Clorox and anti-slavery laws and Febreze. Yes, the how has changed, but the why remains the same. God wants us to live within his boundaries so that we don't get hurt. Bruner writes, on reaching maturity... The child obtains freedom from his parents, but it is important that the child first learn to honor them because once he's mastered this, the freedom is no longer dangerous. We have to understand, we have to learn to respect God's boundaries and especially their purpose before we can exercise freedom within those boundaries without getting ourselves hurt. So, so why don't we respect the Bible? Jesus had an immense reverence for scripture and commands us to do so also, which should be enough. But if it's not, scripture is also the primary vehicle for us to know and develop a relationship with the living God, which should be enough. But if it's not, scripture also outlines the boundaries and ethics that protect us from myriad dangers and, and, and evils in the world, which should also be enough. But if all of that is still not enough, Human beings must have a center. We must have a standard by which we order our lives. We all have to decide at some point what our absolute truth is going to be. And if you've chosen your thoughts and your feelings for that, my question to you is, how's that working out? How's that working out for you? Because it's never, ever worked out well for me. Verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So does this mean that we need to be very careful to never boil a goat in its mother's milk per Deuteronomy 14? I don't think so. At that point, the goat probably doesn't have any objections. When Jesus says anyone who sets aside one of the, the least of these commands, that the, these commands he's referring to is probably referring to the, the six commands he's about to give. So he's saying anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands I'm about to give. And he says what happens, they will be called least 
in the kingdom of heaven. So maybe a more important question is, does this mean that someone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and, and they're called least, does that mean that they still get in? They're just called least, but, but they still get into the kingdom of heaven. And the answer is we don't know. There are people who love Jesus and who are absolutely brilliant and study the scriptures diligently, and they, they argue on both sides of this case. But what we can know from the text is this, that, that what we do with the scripture will be done with us also, minimizing or maximizing. And, and if we minimize it, we will be minimized in the kingdom. We will lose perhaps not our salvation, but some of our significance. And if we maximize it, if we give it significance, we will be maximized. We will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and to maximize scripture, to, to, to give it the significance it deserves, it means more than to just know it. We have to obey it. We have to do it. I have read every Harry Potter book that exists, and yet I cannot produce a Patronus charm. I know the words expect a Patronum, but that doesn't make me any more magical because knowing the words is not enough. I watch Steeler games, and that doesn't make me any better at football. Like, I can sit there and pick apart their errors because I'm not out there. I don't know what it's like to be playing on the field because watching isn't enough. Rob came home recently from work, and I was watching an exercise video. Now I say watching and not doing because I wasn't actually exercising. Uh, I was sitting on my couch, eating Cheerios, watching an exercise video. But let me, just let me explain, let me explain. So, so there's all these free exercise videos on Amazon, right? But because I have rheumatoid arthritis, there are certain exercises I can do because they're easy on the joints. And then there are some that I just can't do because they'll hurt me. But I can't always tell the difference when I'm just like reading a description. So sometimes I preview the videos, but, but despite the deepest and most profound wish of my heart, Previewing an exercise video does not actually make me any more fit because previewing is not enough. <clears throat> knowing the words, knowing the strategy, knowing the movements isn't enough unless we actually get up and do it. Instruction is useless until it is obeyed. Now, parenthetically, I'm not encouraging you to practice witchcraft. I know the Harry Potter analogy breaks down at this point. My point uh, um, is simply that, that scripture the commands of scripture are intended to be experientially understood. They're meant to be understood experientially. We maximize scripture by doing. Scripture is, is useless, the instruction is useless unless it's obeyed. What's, what's the use in me reading the Bible if I don't intend to follow what it says? Listen, God, God does not give us wisdom and insight just for us to consider it. He doesn't give it just for us to consider it. If we don't obey that wisdom and insight, then, then, then he might stop offering it. Or, or maybe just it will get harder and harder to discern that wisdom from the voice of our own desires until one day maybe we can't tell the difference anymore. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus finally just lays it all out there. If we're not better at the law than the Pharisees, we're not going to make it into the kingdom at all. And that's really bad news because the Pharisees, they were the best at the law at the time of Jesus. That we, we, we think of them as hypocrites, but they were actually really good at the law. And what does it look like to have, have a, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees? I wish, I wish that this was just an allusion to the, to the credited righteousness that we get when we accept faith in Jesus Christ. I wish that's all he meant, but that would be inconsistent 
with the moral and ethical flavor of Matthew's gospel. It is, it's absolutely a gospel seasoned with grace, but the meat of this gospel is a call to action, a call to do the scriptures. And in calling us to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's calling us not only to do the scriptures, but to do the scriptures better than they did. And he's about to provide us six examples how, how to do the scriptures, again, not in greater quantity, but with greater depth. He's saying it's not enough. It's not enough for you to just, to just uh, keep all the laws of the Pharisees, which tell you not to murder or commit adultery. It's not enough because if you don't murder, but you do hate, if you don't commit adultery, but you do lust, if you love your neighbor, but not your enemy, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is this salvation by works? Does this contradict everything that Zach is always up here reminding us that it's all about grace? I don't think so, but here's the reality, guys. We can't get around the fact that the Bible teaches both. It absolutely teaches salvation by faith alone, but it also teaches that works of love are evidence of faith at Christ's final judgment. Even, even Paul, Paul who flies high the banner of salvation by faith, even Paul teaches both in Romans 2 and Romans 10. Listen to Ephesians 2 here. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, listen, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Brunner writes, we are confronted with the question of whether we take seriously the connection of the promise of salvation with an actively lived Christian life. No, no, these works don't get us into the kingdom of God, but, but for those of us who have been graciously invited already, these acts of love demonstrate an overflow of the gratitude we feel for that undeserved invitation. I was listening to this fascinating podcast recently about the, the ghost armies of World War II. After the U.S. troops landed in Normandy in June of 1944, they began to push the German forces back across France. And because they were moving so quickly, um, when, once they'd reached the Luxembourg border in September, um, they, they were moving so quickly that gaps began to appear in the line. And, and, and uh, the Germans at this point were desperate to break that line. And one of the gaps that opened up was about 70 miles long because some of Patton's troops got stalled by a river. Um, and, and this gap opened up. And, and had the Germans broken through it and flanked the army, it could have changed the tide of the entire war. So, so, so a special unit of about 1,100 troops was deployed to this gap in the line, this 70-mile gap in the line. And their job, this is a true story, their job was to pretend to be the 20,000 troops of the 6th Armored Division. And to do this, they were given inflatable tanks and rubber guns. And then this is fascinating, this elaborate sound system, all these big speakers that they had on rollers that, that played these pre-recorded noises of artillery being driven or, or of troops marching and, and even very specific sounds like one guy asking his friend for a cigarette and when the townspeople heard these noises and they saw the inflatable tanks, they, they spread the word and the Germans held back. But, but one night, a couple of guys from the town stumbled upon, uh, the, and, and they, would, they would move the set around at night, so to speak, like they would arrange the tanks and all that stuff at night so no one would see them um, and blow their cover. So one night, these two guys wander in and they, they come across this soldier and they, and, and they look behind him and they see these four American troops who have lifted up a tank on their shoulders to reposition it. 
just moving it around. And, and, and this soldier who's standing in front of them is freaking out. He's like, I gotta get rid of these guys or else they're gonna, they're gonna know the secret. So he's yelling at them, but he can tell they're not, they're not registering him. They're looking past him at this bizarre sight of these four average-sized men lifting up this multi-ton piece of artillery. And so when finally the, the trance is broken and they start to realize that there's a guy talking to them, uh, the, the, the soldier who's desperate to keep this secret, he changes his strategy a little bit. And so he kind of, he beckons them in close and he leans forward and he whispers, the Americans are very strong. <laughs> and, and miraculously it works. I mean, they held the line. The, the sights and the sounds were enough to profess this genuine army, but, but, but had they been pressed, even for a minute, had they been pressed, then those inflatable tanks and those rubber guns would have been trampled under an army that would have utterly destroyed them because their strength was not genuine. Their strength was not genuine. Jesus wants faith and love. And yes, only faith justifies and gives victory over the enemy, but only love proves faith genuine. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and thanks be to God for that. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The truth is, good works don't save us. The truth is, good works don't save us, but we were made for them. Good works don't save us, but we were saved for them. And if you're the type of person who just beats yourself up about never having done enough and you've gotten some sweaty palms during the sermon, listen, don't, please don't mistake me. Hear me say that, 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 that we don't have to be afraid because our righteousness already surpasses that of the Pharisees when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior because his righteousness is credited to us before God. He already alludes to this in the very first verse. He came to fulfill the law both the demands of living it, which he lived perfectly, and then also the price of breaking it, which he paid permanently. So we don't have to be afraid that, that our deeds might not be enough to get us into the kingdom of God, because spoiler alert, they're not, and they never will be. But Paul's doctrine of the law's insufficiency refers only to its power to justify to make us blameless. He never says it's powerless to sanctify, to make us holy. He says it's powerless to make us perfect. He never says it's powerless to make us better. He says it's powerless to save us. He never says it's powerless to help us. But because we, we know we have grace, it can be really easy to ask, what good is the law? Why do I need to stop getting wasted? Why do I need to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? Why do I need to, to, to read my Bible and pray? Why do I need to, fo to follow any of these rules? And the answer is this, the kingdom of God has already begun to arrive around us, but when we resist sanctification, we resist its arrival in us. And that's bad news for everybody. So what good is the law? The answer is this, it's a matter of life and death. And no, the law can't save your soul, but do this with me. Add up, add up the aftermath of every time you've broken it. Every morning after, every embarrassing apology, every withdrawal, every moment spent in the fear that you're gonna be found out for who you really are. Add it up. Make it a sum, the shame, the guilt, the hiding, the self-loathing, the fear, the despair. Add all of that up. 
And that looks a lot like death to me. What good is the law? The answer is this, is that we, if we never try, if we never try, then we ne may never experience our own need for grace. We may never feel the weight of the debt he paid for us and, and, and never experience the gratitude that naturally overflows from this revelation of unmerited love. We may never be driven back to a poverty of spirit with, which Jesus delights to bless. What good is the law? We miss grace without it. The Pharisees miss grace because they preferred the law, but sometimes we miss grace because we don't know the law. We don't know the law, and the law is what humbles us. It's what shows us how far we've fallen short of the mark. It's true, it is powerless to save us, but it has much power to drive us back to the only one who can. That's the power of the law. And I can't, I can't completely reconcile the, the Jesus of Paul and the Jesus of Matthew. I don't know that anyone can, but I do know that they're the same Jesus. And I know that neither of these writers is lying to us. The inadequacy is not with scripture, it's with human understanding because somehow both are true. Somehow Jesus offers the utmost agape to us as sinners and then demands the utmost agape from us as saints. Both are true, and I can't tell you how. But fortunately, God doesn't require us to have a perfect understanding of his gifts before he will give them to us. This is not a mystery I think we were meant to solve. This is a mystery I think we were meant to proclaim. Right down to the last jot and tittle. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your grace always meets us where we are, but is never content to leave, it, leave us where it found us. Thanks Lord, that, thanks, Lord, that we don't have to worry if we've never done enough. We don't have to worry about whether or not our deeds are enough. Lord, we know they're not. We know that only you are enough. We haven't done enough, but you have done enough. Lord, let us, let us rest in the knowledge of the gift of your grace, that it is unmerited favor. But Lord, we are so grateful that in the midst of that grace, you invite us to be bringers of grace into your kingdom. That you invite us, even though we have so little to offer, to help invite your kingdom into this world. Lord, help us to not be satisfied by just being forgiven sinners. Lord, help us to realize that that's not all we can be. We are all forgiven sinners, but, but, but help us... Help us to not be content with that. Help us to be content only with being saints. So Lord, we're so grateful. Thank you for the gift of your grace, which cleanses us, and the invitation to be saints, which propels us forward toward love and good deeds. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.